You're listening to the Betway Insider Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Betway Insider Podcast. On this week's episode, we're joined by one of the best journalists around to discuss the evolution of Conte's Chelsea, the curious case of Guardiola's Manchester City, and Jurgen Klopp's criticism of Gary Neville. But that's not all. Let's get started. Hello there. I'm Tom Bowles, and this is episode 36 of the Betway Insider Podcast. Alongside me, as always, is resident tipster Alan Alger. Hi, Tom. Great to see you, Al. And joining us for what is our final show of the calendar year is an acclaimed journalist, broadcaster and author. A very warm welcome to ESPN senior writer Gabriel Marcotti. Great to be with you guys. It's lovely to see you. Uh, we've got all the usual stuff coming up. Finish this sentence. Why is Alan? Quick questions. But there's a lot to talk about before then. Uh, I want to start, Gabriel, with Chelsea. Ten games winning, six points clear. Um, I think with Pep Guardiola, there's an interesting kind of juxtaposition of what he wants his team to play like and how practical it is for them to play that way. With Conte at Chelsea, is this his ideal, how Chelsea are playing? All right, I'm going to a bit of a cop-out here, but I'm going to separate that question in two. Okay, that's absolutely um, fine. If Conte were here, he would say, like, ah, you know, I want fight, I want passion, I want intensity, I want people executing what I tell them to do. And in that respect, that's what they're doing. But when he came in and he had an idea of how he wanted to play with the players he had, um, this isn't it. Right. Conte prides himself on knowing and being able to teach a bunch of different systems. Uh, he's played a bunch of different systems. And I think, and I mean, I only watched the Sunderland game on, on television, but I obviously watched the previous ones. I don't think Conte feels that they're lucky, but he does feel perhaps a little bit that teams are going to figure out this 3-4-3 because this version of 3-4-3 um, isn't perhaps that unpredictable. And maybe one of the reasons we saw Cesc Fabregas start mm-hmm. instead of Matic might have had something to do with that. Certainly, if you saw Sunderland last night, Moyes basically just mirrored, oh, I'll put the 3-4-3 and I'll have, you know, I'll play with uh, all these center halves and defensive players. And it didn't work out, but, you know, it is these are signs that people are reacting, trying to figure out uh, the way Chelsea play and, and, and trying to counter that. Obviously, it's going really well. You've just touched on it then. He thinks it might um, it might not be able to last. How do you see this team evolving as the season goes on and also Conte at Chelsea kind of over his tenure there? So I think he's going to try to you know make certain changes as it goes on, and it's not going to have to do necessarily with with lack of performance. But obviously with Zuma, I mean, he was on the, on the bench the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's somebody that I think he would like to see if he can put into his back three mm-hmm. package. Um, I think he would like to see a striker um, at some point, and, and that might be something they address in January. Um, the, the big difference, I know, you know, at Juventus, he'd often play 3-5-2, but it was a much less predictable 3-5-2. You can do more things when you have two strikers moving around in different directions, when you have, you know, people like, like Pirlo and Vidal and... Uh, and guys like that in midfield, mm-hmm. you know, it's different than having, with all due respect, Matic and Conte. Those are great players, but they do different things. Yeah. So I think he's going to evolve in that direction. And I think the theme with Conte has been I deliver results and then little by little I become more and more powerful and you give me what I want. That's what happened at Juventus where at the beginning he had to make do with what was there and then later he, you know, demanded more and more. And ultimately that's what led to him leaving. Um, and I think he's going to try to. Or be surprised you have the same pattern at Chelsea. Proves it on the pitch, if, and if he can prove it on the pitch, then he gets even more of a say, more of a backing, more of a, you know, more in terms of making demands of the owner. Okay, Alan. So ten 
10 wins on the spin, six points clear. How are the bookies seeing this title race? Is it still all open? Well, they're now our second odds-on favourites of the Premier League season. Obviously, Manchester City were odds-on after Game 6 and their fantastic start. But since that weekend, where Chelsea lost 3-0 at Arsenal and went out to 25-1 to for the title, they've obviously won every single game and have collapsed to an odds-on price, while City have drifted to 9-2. to and uh, they obviously had a defeat against Chelsea within that. 6-1 to one Liverpool. Arsenal back out to 7-1. Seven, seven to one, Have doubled in price after the defeat at Everton. Being the only team in the top eight that actually lost this week, uh, this midweek. 25-1 to one Manchester United and 25-1 to one Tottenham. But if, if you look at that Chelsea price after game six, you can see that, as I was saying on every podcast around that time, maybe we just overreact a lot to the long-term markets, which at that point would have still had 32 games to go. And we maybe just don't see a bigger picture. And it happened with Leicester last season, but obviously their price came in gradually over time. They didn't have these massive drifts and peaks and troughs within their price. They just came in gradually over the course of the season. And I think there was a bigger, bigger overreaction to Man City last season than there was this one. And just looking at the, the Arsenal price, they're still failing to convince when they're uh, bigger than four to six or um in the Premier League this season. Well, that was the thing. A lot of people might have been surprised by the defeat at Everton, but you weren't, were you? And you can uh, you can tell us why. No, I mean, I'm um, as we say most weeks, I'm accused of being a, a rather pessimistic Arsenal fan or, or <laughs> downright negative and um, actually even harsher words used on Twitter. <laughs> which but, aren't appropriate for the air. Which aren't appropriate for the air. But I, 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 what I try to say is I try to be realistic about every single team and you try to look at it on the basis of facts, stats and the prices that and the and the, the different figures that are to hand to, to us um, in the industry. And there's one key element to Arsenal's performances over the last five years and that's that whenever they've been bigger than four to six for a Premier League match and it's now 54 occasions, they've only actually won nine of those games. And this season, in all competitions, when they've been bigger than four to six to win a game, they've only actually won one of nine. Now, that suggests that when the going gets tough and those tougher games, they're just not winning enough of those. And you'd only need to really win about 33% of those to 25% of those to actually make a challenge in, in all of the competitions that you're actually playing in. But we don't. And, and this season, it's down around sort of, well, what is that, 11.5%, 12%. And over time, it's just at uh, a figure just under tw- under 25%, which means that they won't be challenging in the way... I mean, it, it, it's very clear to say they won't win the title. From, from those facts and figures, it's very clear to say, even this far out, they won't win the title. And I was prepared to say that when they were short as 3-1 to one a few weeks ago, and I'm, I'm more than prepared to say it after what we saw at Everton. Um, it doesn't change. And, and the good thing about it, and I sp- spoke to one of our traders about this, he said, with Arsenal, the good thing is you've got 20 years of stats under the same manager. It's not as if something's directly changed about the club or the way that they're playing. So, um, yeah, I'm being pessimistic again. But What do you uh, make of that, Gabriel? Um, I'm, I, I mean, I'm pretty astounded by the figures. Um, I'm also... I'm really interested in what you said about you know things changing and, and how we and how we sort of decide what impact they have. When people say stuff like you know Newcastle haven't won at Fulham since 1912, I'm like, well, you know what? They're different people, different players, Absolutely. different manager, yeah. no mm-hmm. electricity. Um, 
And I'm tempted to say, yeah, but in those 54 games before, you know, Mustafi wasn't there or Alexis Sanchez wasn't playing up front or, you know, managers evolve. In this case, with Wenger over 20 years, you know, he's not like, he's not Pep or even Mourinho in terms of changing the way yeah. he plays. So, or even Conte, as you mentioned. At the start, or, or, yeah. or, or even Conte, I mean, who's kind of done that from day one. So, um, you know, they're... There may there may well be something in it. I personally, I thought Everton were terrible, and I felt pretty confident that Arsenal were going to beat them away. But you know, what do I know? <laughs> you know yeah, you were proven right. I mean, obviously, that a lot of fans have overreacted on the basis of of what you would, in isolation, call a defeat in one of the harder games that Arsenal have played. But when you look at the difficulty of games, and again, it's something I've mentioned all season on this podcast. You really do need to look at the type of games that teams either have left in their title challenge or have played already in their title challenge. And we did say that Manchester City, most of their wins at the start of the season were against sides that you would have expected to be in the bottom eight of the table. So two sides that I'll flag up in the prices are Liverpool at 6-1. to one, And uh, Liverpool only have four remaining games away at their fellow top ten, whereas Arsenal and Chelsea have seven and eight respectively. And Tottenham, they've only got three games remaining away at, the t- at their fellow top ten. And in fact, after January, their season actually gets quite easy in relative oh, terms. Yeah. So you would say at Tottenham at 25-1 to 1 might actually make an impact on the title race. Chelsea look to be away and gone on the prices, but we've seen this before. Speaking okay. of Tottenham, I was just very, very curious about this just because obviously 10 in a row for Chelsea, the Premier League record is 14 over two seasons. I think actually it might actually be the record for the top flight as well. Yes. Um, and I noticed, so they've got three more games, all of them sort of... In fact, Chelsea don't actually leave London until like until they go play Leicester on uh, on January 14th. That's correct, yeah. But So they have three games, which you, know, you think might be manageable. But then that 14th game where they can equal the record, that's Tottenham away yeah. on January 4th. And I'm wondering, like, where do you begin to price that when you factor like the the rivalry the fact that Tottenham might you know this might be their last chance maybe possibly to, to go in the top four Chelsea's having a generally a very good record against Spurs over the past 20 years uh how <laughs> where do you even begin to think about that do these things matter or is it just the 22 guys on the pitch they really shouldn't matter and you'd have to look at the fact that if you're a Tottenham fan going to that game and you're wondering about whether or not winning will actually make Arsenal holders of this record forevermore, you'd still need to look at the fact that you probably hate Chelsea as much as you do Arsenal. <laughs> so if you're a fan, you're not going to have that much of an impact. If it's actually filtering through to Pochettino and the players, then they're really focusing on the wrong thing because there can only be one outcome that they'd all be happy with, and that's beating Chelsea, regardless of any Arsenal records that are, that are hanging out there. But um, we do make it... Uh, quite a short price that they do get to that game with the record intact because as you said they will be heavily odds on for the next three games which are Palace away Bournemouth at home Stoke at home and then that Tottenham away game and as you say until they go to Leicester they won't be leaving London which at this time of the year is a very fortunate way that the fixture list has fallen for them Very handy indeed Uh, I want to go to Guardiola who I mentioned at the top of the show obviously City got a solid result in midweek but I know Gabriel you wrote about his What's Tackles press conference and uh, Rory Smith wrote a really interesting piece this week um, I thought mine was better (laughs) I thought they were both very good Um, there is this kind of them and us arc which is developing isn't it What, what do you make of of that and also his 
going back to Saturday, the comments that he made, because you thought it, there was maybe a few issues from him saying those things, didn't you? I, I'm shocked. I mean, I think we've seen both him and Klopp with all this carious, poor Steve Cook nonsense. You know, two managers I really, really like mm -hmm. and who are generally very good with the media coming out and saying silly things. Now, I think it was a match of the day. He was asked about his defending. And, you know, he was asked, you know, is it the system? Is it the tactics? And he says it's not the tactics. Is it the, uh, is it the individuals? Um, it's not the individuals. At that point, if you rule out those two things, which I thought was a great line of questioning, you know, then you got to come out and say something like, well, you know, I know what it is or and I'll figure it out or, you know, we win and lose together. You could come up with some kind of stupid manager speak cliche to go have mm -hmm. it go away. And so what he said made no sense. And then it followed into this, this, this thing with the tackles and the second balls. And this is what I find difficult to accept with, with Pep White. I mean, I think he's, he's tremendous. But really, you only kind of figured out now that winning the second ball was important in the, in the English game. <laughs> yeah, in football, um, yeah. And you really thought that you could leave three guys, you know, uh, and again, you can play with a high line and leave three people on the break if you've got freaks of nature. If you have, you know, he did it in Munich with David Alaba and Josh Kimmich, who are both very, very fast, aren't traditional center halves, but that's fine because out in the open field, frankly, I don't want, you know, a per Mertesacker, you know, lumbering <laughs> after somebody. I want, like, you know, the little quick guy. But so to think you're going to do it with freaking Kolarov and Bakari Sanya, well, you know, you're, you're hiding to nothing there. Um, I, and so it it seemed to me like it's, it's just this mysterious miscalculation. And you can say he's new to the Premier League, he's getting to know the league, but you know what? It's the Premier League. I mean, what's there to know? He, he owns a television, right? <laughs> More importantly, um, Chiki Begiristein, who worked with him at Barcelona, knows him inside out, knows his brand of football inside out. That guy's been here since, what, October 2012? He's had a long time, yeah. And he knows these players intimately? He's got Arteta on the staff who's played in the Premier League for what? 50 years. Yeah, no, yeah. but but that's... And, and I wonder, what is the dynamic really like? Is it a yeah. case of Begiristein saying, you know what, Pep, I know you kind of thought we'd go into the season with sort of Kolarov because company, you know, gets hurt and Kolarov would be our third center half. You know, he's not really quick. Um, and it's a case of Pep saying, no, shut up, Chiki, he is quick. You know, or I'll make him quick or whatever. Or, mm. I mean, these are, fa to me, these are fascinating questions which we don't know the answer. And the stuff about the tackling, too, you know, the this narrative that, like, oh, it's, it's a bunch of fancy dance playing, you know, prissy, beautiful football. Um, Guardiola does care about defending. He defends by pressing high, right? So when the ball's at the other end of the pitch, that's when then nobody's shooting on my goal. It's mm -hmm. as simple as that. And, and if... And his players work very hard defensively to win it back. That's the whole principle of the high press, which I think defines Guardiola a lot more now than simply possession. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the reality is when you break the press, so his guys know how to tackle and they know how to win balls and how to win second balls. But when you break the press, that's the real problem. But it's not the second balls. Not too many people argued with Xavi when he used to say that um, I don't. I don't really get anything from from tackling at all. If I'm tackling, it means that I've done something else wrong somewhere on the pitch, or so, one of my teammates has. And Barcelona, a lot of Barcelona players used to say that whenever they were due to play an English team in the Champions League, they'd have an, an interview in an English paper or a press conference where they say, "Well, if, if I'm tackling, then maybe someone's done something wrong in our team." 
Yeah, but how many years ago was that? I think four or five years ago, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think probably has moved on from that. Yeah. I mean, you know, well, first of all, that Barcelona team used to press uh, as well, but they used to cover more ground than anybody else. Yeah. So they won the ball back a lot with interceptions or whatever. It was incredible. It almost doesn't make sense, right? They have the highest possession stats, but then they also cover more ground than everybody, and they sprint more than everybody because they work so hard off the ball. Um, but he doesn't play that way anymore. You know, that's yeah. not it's not the issue. And and again, maybe what Xavi meant by tackles is sort of that crunching, you know, fifty-fifty ball, Peter Reed against Steve McMahon yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Rio Ferdinand, you say exactly the same thing. Well, I've made a slight tackle. I know it's probably because I've misread right. read something yeah. earlier in the in the move. Um, I, I was doing some research for this and I, I came across your preseason predictions and you actually didn't have City in the top four. Did you um, envisage something like this happening? Because a lot of people, like I was just alluded to earlier, had City strolling to the Premier League. So I can't take any credit for this because you know, we were asked to make predictions in the mm-hmm. middle of August and I said, guys, this is stupid. I know the season's starting, but you know the transfer window's still open. I did think that... I didn't think City were going to win the title because I thought it would be a big leap for Pep to go and and really get his point across. I think people would figure, you know, initially if he had some success, I think people would, would figure it out. I think it would just simply take time. A lot of newcomers, Gundogan's injury record, and of course he's hurt again. Mm-hmm. Um, with hindsight, if I had a do-over, I wouldn't have put them fifth. I might have put them third or fourth. Mm-hmm. It's just that at that point, I was kind of, you know, in love with with Klopp. And I thought, you know, couldn't leave out Conte from the top. Four. So just through the process of elimination, I right, thought Mourinho okay. was going to do something. Um, but yeah, I did think all along that, and I did write all along that, you know, I thought it was going to take a longer transition. And when they started so well, I was, I was really, really surprised. Okay, thank you. You just mentioned Klopp there. What did you make of him dropping Karius, particularly given his defense of him at the beginning of the week? There's no problem with dropping Karius, I think. I mean, he's entirely entitled to do that. It's You know, you have to play the guy you think is your best goalkeeper. And I think it would be a sign of weakness saying, like, oh, look, so he's got hurt feeling. I need to prove everybody on, wrong by playing him again, you know. The guys had a I, – I feel for Karius a little bit um, because, frankly, what he said – and you can go back and look at Ian Ladyman's original mm-hmm. thing. You know, he said – I, I can almost picture him and having lived in Germany, and though I know a lot of German athletes are very, very confident and stuff and outspoken, and he never said Gary Neville was a failure as a manager. No. He said, you know, he was a manager for a bit, and now he talks about football on television. There's nothing wrong with that. If he'd never been a manager, you know, he'd still be a pundit, you know? <laughs> it, and, and I think he got a bit of a rough ride as a result. That said, Klopp then coming to his defense that way and, and having a go at poor old, you know, Steve Cook. I thought that was way out of line. There's nothing wrong with what Cook said. I think no. people need to grow up a little bit on, on that part. And, you know, it's one thing if you're saying you're Klopp and well, I'm going to go and take on the Nevilles and the Intelligentsia and it turn into a, a, a Liverpool United thing. But it's another thing to pick on Steve Cook. I mean, come on. That takes I think, us. I think, sorry, I'm, I think Fergie successfully turned it into a Liverpool United thing, you know, early in his career, didn't he? When he was trying to to, to galvanise this us against them attitude at United. But I just mentioned another goalkeeper that were, was obviously uh, in the same game as Karras at the weekend and and was 
judged to have made a couple of mistakes, and that's Darren Randolph, but mm-hmm. probably one of uh, West Ham's best players last night when I was at the Olympic Stadium, and uh, along with Pedro Obiang, was was. Uh, two decent players in what was probably one of the worst games I've seen, but uh, a vital three points for uh, for West Ham last night. Okay, cheers. I'm uh, going to go to this week's finish this sentence. Uh, it's where we start a sentence on our social channels and ask our followers to finish it off. And following the the kind of the back and forth between Carrius Klopp and the Nevilles, we plumped for players criticising pundits is. Uh, here are some of the best replies, and then I'm going to get yours, Gab, in a second. Um, Josh Hood said, it's justified, you should be allowed to defend yourself. Um, Brendan Cole said, it's only fair since pundits criticise players all the time. Uh, Sean Bromley says, it's like actors criticising reviewers, pointless, because in the end, the pundit will always have the last say on the issue. Um... Dave Wood, he said Klopp lost the argument when he blamed it on them, being ex-United players. If he truly wanted to defend his keeper, he'd have given verbals to Carrot and Redknapp as well. What do you think, uh, Gab? Obviously, we've touched on this a few, Gabriel, uh, Gab, we've touched on it a few times just before. Players criticising pundits in general, your, your view? Um, I think it's, <laughs> as an outsider, uh, it, it's part of the spectacle mm-hmm. and it gets tasty and juicy. Um, but I also think when you when you criticize a pundit, unless they see something that's actual, you know, libelous or just untrue, and that happens sometimes too, you have to be cognizant of the fact that when you do that, you are elevating their importance. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, obviously, Gary Neville is already hugely important and influential in this country, and that's fine. You know, Phil Neville, perhaps less so. So maybe you know, you just never mention him and just focus <laughs> on, uh, you know, on, on Gary. Uh, you. You're making a conscious decision to call somebody out, and you are giving a lot of importance to what they say when you do that. Sometimes it can make you feel better. Sometimes it makes sense. But as a general rule, well, if if that's what you want to do, that's fine. It's probably not in your interest. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Just quickly, I want to finish with the Champions League. It seems like a long time ago, but Arsenal buying once again. Alan's not confident. Gabriel, any any reason for Arsenal to be confident going to, to Munich and... And so forth. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I would not be trading anything right now because <laughs> I think two months is an eternity, especially with Bayern having their big break and going away. Um, it's taken Bayern a long time to start playing well. Mm-hmm. They've done it in the last three, four games. They have a huge game against Red Bull Leipzig coming up before the before the break. That's going to, I think, really impact their mood going into the break. Um, I think I don't see why Arsenal, you know, should necessarily fear Bayern to that degree, uh, or let Bayern get inside their heads. Um, I think that's going to be a big challenge. Oh, one thing while I'm at it, uh, and you may have a view on this. Uh, no <laughs> I'm doubt. sure you will. This idea of teams being rewarded by playing the second leg at home. I looked at the last five years in the unseeded rounds in the Europa League and Champions League, and actually the team that played home first advanced more often than the team that played away first. And it's a pretty big sample, you know, five that, years. That is a big sample, but overall it's it's still a massive advantage to play second. Um, right. Based on what? Again, it will just be a bigger sample size. If you went back 20 years, it would show... Um, I mean, you say you went back five years, and and it shows that the home, the home team's progressing more often. Um, home team in the second leg. The home team in the second leg. Sorry, no, no, no. Sorry, sorry. 
the away team. It's about fifty one forty nine. Right. The away, the away team in the second leg. Okay. So progresses more often. So overall, those stats going back about twenty years would probably show sixty forty the other way. I'd be shocked about that. Simply for, or rather, I again I don't know the relevance of going back twenty years when footballs become a lot more homogenous and teams are much yeah. more familiar with them you know, with each other these days. But I think a lot of it has to do with the style of play. I mean, I think some teams might benefit from being at home second. Um, totally. I mean, you're saying um, the, the winners of the group uh, in order of rank should be able to pick their opponent. Yeah, so well, I, <laughs> well, they do that in rugby, didn't they? They did, used to do that in rugby league, didn't they? Let's see, yeah, yeah. That's rugby league, interesting yeah. Concept, um, yeah, no, I always I, thought it's just most extra motivation for the team that gets picked out. Which is, I think that's that, that part wasn't? of the thing. I mean, I think but, it would be fun. At the very least, they should get to play whether they should get to decide whether they play home or away first. Yeah, um, because it, it it completely. I think a lot of it really depends on on the type of players you have and yeah. and the style of play you play. I mean, well, the, the counterattacking side. If, if I were like, if you're Atletico Madrid, I think you're better off being away first. Well, maybe it is to do with change styles, but the Racing Post, who um, obviously would publish a list of the, the draws and and give a, a, a detailed preview, they've always carried the stats on this. And I'm pretty sure that Kevin Pauline, their main stats guy, has always said that, that the second leg at home is an advantage overall. Now, you're saying that that's changed to a very narrow margin the other way in the last few years. So that's something I'd have to check. Because off the top of my head, I didn't know that that had, that so had yeah, actually so, happened. I'll, I'll, I will, but, I will email um, you. I'll email you the numbers again. It might be a weird. It'd be good sport. to look at. And obviously, we're only talking the unseeded rounds. So from the yeah. quarterfinal onwards, obviously, if you include the seeded rounds, then other factors come into it. I'll mm-hmm. give you the quick prices. Arsenal two to one to go through. Um, we are trading it now. We have to, uh, even though <laughs> even though you recommend that we shouldn't. No, no, not you. I'm Four saying to... like people might want to hold off a little bit before. <laughs> Four to eleven, Bayern. Uh, two to one, outsiders. Arsenal. That's as in who will progress from the two-legged tie. And uh, 100 to 30 favourites, Barcelona. Seven to two, Bayern. Nine to two, Real Madrid. They are the ones with the biggest price cut after the draw. They look to have the easiest game. Thanks, Al. Uh, now it's going with the next part of the show. Wise Al. Okay, Gabrielle, this is where you take on Alan in our weekly treble competition. The rules are simple. You each pick three win-draw win bets for the weekend's matches and the treble which returns the most profit, if any at all, is the winner. Uh, Neither Alan or Julian Laurent's picks came in last week, uh, meaning the head-to-head against the guests is one all still, Al. And... The charity donation to the English Federation of Disability Sport, which is what any winnings come in, is just over £800. So let's see if we can add to that this week. Uh, Gabrielle, can I have your first pick, please, and a short explanation as to why you've gone for that one? So I have Southampton to beat Bournemouth. Uh, I have that at 8-5. to five. I watched the Leicester uh, the, when, when Bournemouth beat Leicester. Um, they don't look as sharp to me as they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Southampton have actually played better than their results of late. Okay. Al, your first pick, please. My first pick is Middlesbrough to beat Swansea. I think Swansea blitzed by that Rondon hat-trick in <laughs> midweek, and uh, I think they'll still be suffering the after-effects. And I don't think Middlesbrough have been as bad as where their position actually dictates in the league, and I've seen them a couple of times this season, and they should be able to uh, justify short price quotes of 23 to 20. Okay. Gabrielle, pick number two. 
This is easy. The Merseyside Derby. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go for the for the draw here. Um, it's kind of a cliched uh, pick, if you will. Uh, but I think Everton, psychologically, I think they're lifted. They're up for it. Um, I still think the Coutinho situation is problematic for, for Liverpool. And I think that while Klopp likes to go and attack and blend and, you know, go for the win all the time, I think in the back of the player's mind, a draw here is really not a bad result. Okay. Alan, pick number two. Um, I've been a bit harsh on West Ham this season, and we have, you know, good links with them <laughs> being their shirt sponsor. But uh, I'm actually going to support them this week, and I think that they will beat Hull. Um, as I say, the game against Burnley wasn't great um, that I saw in midweek, but I think that West Ham are now just getting to Slavin Bilic's what he would consider his best eleven out on the pitch, which hasn't happened all season, and that's really the bigger problem than the stadium. And you know, everyone made it about the stadium. I think to me, it was more to do with the fact that he just didn't have to call on his his best personnel uh, at any one time during the season. Now he's got that. He's got a, a bit of uh, stability in the squad, and they can justify odds on quotes and make it six points from six in the week. Okay, thank you, Gabriel. Your final pick is. I like big prices. Yeah. Um, I think this this whole business with Leicester was it. They've lost seven or eight, uh, seven of eight uh, away from home this season. I Struggling think on the road, um, yeah is very much overplayed um, and you know they're playing a Stoke side which I think and we saw that again last night some players have other things on their mind and I think it's a, it's a challenge for Mark Hughes because you know you go you, you want to poke them or do you make changes um, and I think at that price at 9-5 to five, I have to go with Leicester they, they, I thought they played well um, against uh, um, obviously they were good against against City. I thought mm-hmm. against Bournemouth once they woke up in the second half, they showed that they can play. And um, yeah, nine to five. That's my pick. Okay, I'll finish it off, please. Uh, trusted Tottenham last week to win at Old Trafford, and that was uh, the downfall of uh, of the treble. Uh, I'm going to trust them even more at home to to Burnley. It's not an outlandish pick. They're the shortest price of the weekend at two to nine, but. I think when you're uh, when you're trying to win money for the charity, I think you've got to stay safe. And mine totals up to three point three three to one this week, which is just eighty three pounds twenty five pence for the EFDS. But it will get us further to that big target of about two and a half grand that we want to raise for them. Whereas my one is enormous, which will presumably get us straight to the two and a half <laughs> grand, right? Twenty four point four eight to one, Gab. Six hundred and twelve pounds into the charity's coffers if your three picks come in. Okay, thank That's you. Good. good luck to you both. Uh, you can keep up to date with the picks by following Batway on Twitter. Now let's get on with the final part of the show. The Betway Insider. Quick questions. Okay, Gabrielle, this is where we find out a bit more about your life and career through a series of questions. And I'm particularly interested in your new book, Hail Claudio. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, can you give a quick summary of, of what it's about? Well, it's basically it's an uh, unauthorised biography of, of Claudio Ranieri. Um, and this incredibly long sort of life that he's had in football, starting at the very bottom up. Uh, and obviously encompassing incredible events of, of last season at Leicester as well. Uh, we tried to write it from different, certainly the Leicester bit, you know, everybody knows the story. It's fresh in everybody's mind. Hopefully mm-hmm. I was able to provide uh, a couple more, a couple new insights. Um, 
I got a guy named Dan Altman, who's um, he's an analytics guy. I got him to uh, analyze what made Leicester good last season and try to determine to what degree luck played a factor. Um, and then I go through obviously his incredible career beforehand, which you know I know people had this image of Ranieri as a tinker man, a sort of lovable loser, but mm -hmm. uh, you know the times he did finish second. It's pretty remarkable. I mean, he finished second to uh, an Arsenal side that you'll remember this well, where you know the Invincibles uh, at Monaco. He finished second with a newly promoted side, and yeah, they did spend an enormous amount of money, but it was still dwarfed by the team that finished first, what <laughs> Paris Saint Germain yeah. spent. And they actually had the, um, uh, I think it's the highest points total ever for a team that finished second uh, at Roma. He finished second. He he made up 14 points on Jose Mourinho's treble winning Inter. Uh, interside. Um, so, and at Juventus, he did it with uh, with a newly promoted side. So, you know, again, an important newly promoted side in Juventus or whatever. But still, uh, it, it is an incredible an incredible career of near misses and um, and ultimately was rewarded last year in the most incredible way. Did you start planning the book before Leicester won the league, or did you kind of have the idea when you thought it was going to happen? How did it all kind of come come together? It was funny. It wasn't actually my idea. Right. Um, it was uh, my literary agent came to me and said, you know, there's a lot of interest in this. I've known Ranieri for it's like 16 years. Um, and they asked me, you know, would you, would you want to write this book? And, you know, the, we're going to write the book regardless whether, he, you know, whether Lesser do it or not. And even though I had a really, really busy summer um, and it was against my better judgment, <laughs> I said, you know, yeah, let's let's go and let's let's do this. And. I was very grateful. I was able to speak to a whole bunch of uh, former players, people around him, his coaching staff. Everybody was very, very generous uh, with his time. And uh, we managed to pull it off. And I wrote it together with uh, a guy named Alberto Polverosi, who's an Italian uh, journalist whose who's first gig as a cub reporter was covering Claudio Ranieri uh, when he was still a player really? uh, at, uh, at Catanzaro. Uh, towards the end of Ranieri's career. So that was quite experience. What was the breakdown like when you write a book with somebody else? Are you kind of both writing words? How, what's the breakdown of that kind of relationship like? So this was the first time that I had uh, I had worked uh, in this way. Mm -hmm. um, and in this case, it was fairly standard. I mean, I covered the, the, the bits at Chelsea, Valencia, uh, Atletico Madrid, uh, Monaco, uh, Leicester and Greece, uh, because of you know what I do is cover European football, mm -hmm. so it was easier. And and Alberto, who's the you know he's the the, the chief uh, football writer for uh, the Italian newspaper Corriere dello Sport, covered his time in Italy, his youth. Um, you know he's very well connected. He was able to get we get people like like Francesco Totti and stuff like that to talk to us. Uh, Claudio once uh, famously in a Rome derby uh, when he was chasing the title. Uh, it's halftime, it's nil-nil, and he takes off Francesco Totti and Daniele De Rossi. Um, and they go on to win 2-0. And, you know, he jokes that, you know, I I wouldn't be standing here to talk to you <laughs> if that had gone wrong. But it, it, there's also this wonderful thing, which, which Totti remarked upon, was for Ranieri to go and, and manage Roma is, you know, he's, he's Roman, mm -hmm. he's a former Roma player, and he's a Roma fan above all. The, the one age-old question uh, to which, which I don't think Ranieri would ever answer, uh, although I think I know what the answer is, is, 
you know, if you could swap this, if you could swap winning the title with Leicester, with winning the title with Roma, with that incredible comeback, you know, would you do it? You know, what would have meant more for you? Um, and I'm sure you will never answer that question. And you think the answer would be? I actually think given the emotional response last year and given that, you know, you've pulled off the greatest upset in the history of team sport, you know, the, over a season, I think it would be Leicester. But wow. I think, I don't think he would say that. <laughs> uh, have you had any feedback from him? Uh, yeah, a, you know, I think he's, I think he's happy for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, um, he, he was, he was going to come out to, um, to, to our, a book signing we arranged in Leicester, which unfortunately had to be canceled due to uh, train problems, meaning I couldn't get up there. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, he, I mean, I think he seems, he seems pleased. It, it's the second sort of unauthorized, uh, biography that I've written uh, and what that, that means is not necessarily a negative one it means that you know they don't they don't speak to you on the record and they don't get to see what's in the book obviously um, but if you're the subject of an unauthorized biography it's generally in your interest to try to help out when you can and it was funny because uh, the book I did before was about Fabio Capello and you know at the beginning Capello's like whoa, 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 whoa you know like I don't you know it's your book you know do what you want and I made the point to him. I said, Fabio, there's a lot more people who really dislike you than there are who <laughs> like you. And it's probably in your interest to at least speak to me on background so that I can yeah. put your version of events in the book. Um, with Ranieri, you really didn't have that problem. I mean, he, he does have the odd enemy, but um, generally most people, you know, like him as a person. Yeah. You did, uh, was it um, the Canio's book? You actually wrote his autobiography. Is that right? Many years ago, yeah. Um, I'm interested in an unauthorized biography versus an autobiography. Which do you think is likelier to get a truer account of events? So, Dicanio's book was an autobiography. So that's him, his voice. Mm-hmm. All I did was kind of, you know, shape his voice, put it in English, put it in, right. in, in grammar. I, I ghosted that. Um, you know, when you when you write an autobiography, you know, you're going to remember things the way you remember them. It's your voice. I think it it's, can be interesting and be very powerful. You learn a lot about the person mm-hmm. because it's them speaking. You don't necessarily include every fact in it because there's some things that some people might want to forget. Now, in Paolo's case, if you've read the book, whether you like him or not, he is brutally honest. Um, when you're writing an, an unauthorized biography, what's interesting, and this happened to me not so much in Claudio's book, although a little bit, but mostly in the Capello book. Um, and this should make you wonder about trials and eyewitness accounts and the reliability. There were situations where you had like, you know, three people who were a part of you to a conversation and they all remembered things completely differently mm-hmm. from like the weather to what was said, to where they were, to what they were wearing. Um, and this happened time and time again. Wow. And, you know, not in situations where people had a reason to lie about it. Yeah, it, it wasn't disingenuous. Um, it was just... But so, you know, then you're writing this and you're like, my goodness. Like, and if this happens to you as like a nonfiction writer, you really wonder, you know, what happens in a court of law when somebody gets <laughs> sent down, and, you know, <laughs> based on eyewitness testimony? Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. I've seen, I've seen science programs where they actually show someone a video or something and then half an hour later they ask five people that have seen the same video and they, they – very rarely remember it in the same way. So it's, I think it's I think absolutely you're right. remarkable <laughs> how often how often that how often that happens. Right. 
Uh, and that book is out now, isn't it? People can go out and buy that. That's right. It's uh, it's out now, and uh, it's a yellow jersey. And um, yeah, you can get it Waterstones, Amazon, you know, usual places. Excellent Foils. stuff. We've got a couple of minutes left, but I want to finish with your Insider Five. This is where we ask our guests to select a five-a-side team based on their area of expertise. Obviously, this week was the Ballon d'Or. You're a well-traveled football man. So we wanted your five players, the five greatest players you've seen live, past or present. Who have you gone for? All right. I hope I can, I'm allowed to do this. I kind of went, didn't necessarily go for the best five because I've had the really, I've had the good fortune of really that's, seeing that's everybody perfect. in the last 20 years. So I went for five guys who I like, some of whom are, are, are the best five. So, um, and I went for a goalkeeper. You know, <laughs> I don't do that that flying goalkeeper thing. Um, <laughs> I I was really torn between Walter Zenga and Gigi Buffon eventually. Um, Head ruled heart, and I went with I went with Buffon in goal, and he can play though. He used to play, he used to play midfield. He played mid midfield until he was twelve years old. Until as he said, yeah, I grew tired of running around, and I said, you know what, like it's hot in the summer, and I said like you know, he said I only want to for a while. He was twelve. He said like I only want to play midfield in winter, in the summers like you know, or when the weather gets hotter, like I'll just go in goal, <laughs> you know. And he was that good that he could do that. Um, it turned out okay for him. Yeah, I, I, I think that was um, <laughs> that did turn out okay. Uh, one guy who I think in five aside would actually be really good um, is uh, the former Germany and Inter Milan left back Andy Bremer, right. um, because he was an ordinary player who became extraordinary. A because he ran like a maniac, but B because he's two footed, uh, and so you couldn't you couldn't defend him. You couldn't show him to his bad foot ever. Right. You could put him across whatever. And I love the idea of the two footed. Playmaker, I, probably, probably the reason why I have a weak spot for for Santi Casorla, um, yeah. and Andy Bremer could also put in a tackle. Another guy who puts in a tackle is probably my favorite player from the British Isles ever, um, and that's Roy Keane. Who I don't think needs any introduction. Wonderful. So if I have these two maniacs running around, I need people with a little bit more quality up front. One of them, Diego Maradona, who you know I think that again that's a bit of a Probably a bit of a slam dunk. Um, yeah, that's nice. Where, when did you see him? So I saw him. Uh, he when I was living in, I was in school. He came. I saw him in a friend. I hope that still counts. That counts. But, yeah, yeah, we'll like that. We'll like that. <laughs> okay. Uh, he came and he played a couple. I was living in Japan at the time. And I was in school and uh, and he came and he played uh, in some charity game with his uh, with his brothers, uh, Raúl and uh, Hugo, uh, both of whom were. Pretty rubbish relative, <laughs> relative to the yeah, greatest player of all time. <laughs> okay, and your final player. All right. So I'm going to exclude the two obvious ones mm-hmm. simply because, you know, I don't want to upset the other half. So they're both disqualified. Although They I both listen, actually, Gabs. Exactly. <laughs> although I would imagine in a five-a-side <laughs> context, probably um, Messi might make a little more yeah. sense um, than the other guy. Um, but I already have a, a little quick Argentine, um, so I'm going to go for somebody big and powerful, and I'm going to go for Slatan, simply because he seems to be able to finish from from any angle, and I just love the idea of Slatan just kind of parking himself and just terrifying like two guys while Diego just runs around him. Then you have Roy Keane scaring everybody further back. Nobody's going to get past him. If they do, they encounter Andy Bremer, who can also 
whack it from with either foot from further back, and I think Gigi Buffon can just and sit back and relax. Right. See Buffon being quite relaxed at the back if they concede a goal and <laughs> everyone else just going crazy. That's uh, that's, that's a, a weird dynamic in that team. That's a wonderful <laughs> team, and uh, yeah. Beautifully told as well. Um, that's pretty much everything for this episode and this calendar year as well. Uh, like the Premier League, the Insider Podcast is going to in- enjoy a short winter break. Uh, thanks, Al, for your company today and throughout the season. Very enjoyable, Tom. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And naturally, our final thanks goes to the excellent Gabriel Marcotti. Uh, it's been terrific to have you on, so thank you very much. Great to be with you guys. Cheers. Thanks to Gabriel Marcotti for coming in. Alan and I will be back after Christmas. If you enjoyed this Betway Insider podcast, then hit the subscribe button and the next edition will make its way to you. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook or by visiting the Betway blog.